Hello, I'm Lisa Hiller. I'm Macarena Aguilar. And I'm Rebecca Lake. We're on a mission to figure out how communicators can help change the climate conversation. Welcome to our podcast. So today I get to introduce Lisa Hiller, my super talented colleague and friend who is a writer, a documentary maker and everything communications. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Mecca. Do you realize that we're now about halfway through this journey of ours to figure out how communicators can help change the climate conversation? Yes, you're right, actually. Maybe that's why I've been in such a reflective mood lately. I've been thinking about how this issue is like the perfect storm, you know? I mean, so many factors have come together from the beginning to make it hard for people to engage with climate change and for communicators to actually work on. Like when you think about when we first started hearing about climate change in the early 1990s, it was really a problem that was way off in the distant future. It's also a very scientific subject, so really hard to get your head around. And when you do get your head around it, hard to explain it to other people. Yeah, and it's been a very invisible topic until very recently for most people. Mm. And as we've been discovering, I mean, there's a reason for that. There are massively powerful political and financial interests, particularly from the fossil fuel industries, who are working every day to make sure that people have doubts, that they don't see the urgency, and ultimately that they don't take action. But you've been talking to someone who's witnessed this playing out over the past decades, right? Yes, that's right. So I recently had the absolute pleasure of chatting with an incredible woman called Blair Palazzi. So she's dedicated her entire 30-year career to climate action. Blair was the global head of communications for Greenpeace in the 1990s, and she founded the wildly successful grassroots movement 350.org here in Australia. So obviously that's an international movement, but she founded the Australian chapter here. And now she's working on a new venture called Climate and Capital Media, and that really is a startup to watch. They are the only media company out there looking at the financial trends related to climate and the energy transition. And it seems like a big jump from grassroots activism to money markets. Yeah, you know, I was also really interested to ask Blair about that. And it's fascinating because in her 30 years of pushing for climate action, Blair has concluded, yes, of course, grassroots activism is critical, but we need to do more work on moving the money and we need to make it move fast because that is what will really tip the scales when it comes to climate action. Absolutely. Well, it sounds like you had a fascinating conversation, so let's go and hear it. So I'm here today with Blair Palazzi. Welcome to our podcast, Blair. Thank you so much. I wanted to begin by asking you, so you've been a campaigner for climate action for almost 30 years now. Yeah. How did you get involved with this? I started as an envelope stuffer at Greenpeace in Washington, D.C., friend of a friend, short-staffed, and I went in and that was it. I was completely taken in by how incredible this organization was, the scale of the work that they did. Um, in D.C., there's about 100 people working there on you know, everything from whaling and toxic waste to nuclear issues to, you know, kind of responding to whatever came up. Um, and I started, as I said, bottom of the rung, but ended up running the U.S. comms team um, and then eventually got recruited and ran the global Greenpeace comms team out of London. And so that was sort of early 90s, 1993? Yeah. 
Can you give me a sense of what was it like campaigning on climate action at that time? Because that was the time the world was sort of waking up to this reality. I would say initially it was not working on it at all because it was unknown. I think the first talk I heard a talk was by a guy who actually ended up working for Greenpeace, uh, Jeremy Leggett, who started something called Solar Century since, which is really successful. Talk about ahead of the game. It was like the floor dropped out from under me. I realized, I think everyone in the room did instantly, that kind of all other issues paled in comparison unless we figured out how to turn this Mm. around. But in those early days, I'd say we probably worked on pollution more than we worked on climate change. So related, of course, but at that time... People didn't know what global warming really was that much. It um, seemed, I guess it was sort of like a something that was going to happen in the long future. Distant, right. Yeah. So, you know, that in my time in the US, it was very much that focus on toxic waste and, and around petrochemicals. An oil tanker ran aground today off the nation's northernmost ice-free port. Southern Alaska is facing the worst oil pollution disaster in American history. An emergency cleanup operation has been going on all day. Good evening. With every hour, it's becoming more apparent that one of the most pristine coastlines in the world has been fouled in a way that may never be undone. And with every hour, there is more anger aimed at Exxon, the oil company's corporate responsibility. So the Exxon Valdez spill happened under my watch in in, uh, D.C. I was comms person then, and that really did change the world's view of fossil fuels. Not good. Fossil fuels often very, very bad. The damage done in that beautiful, pristine Arctic environment. I I think the whole world wept when you saw that footage. So I think that was maybe a turning point. um, And then a begin to really rethink about what are we doing with all this oil? Mm. Um, Coal and gas kind of came later. So when did you sort of get a sense that there was actually a concerted campaign by the fossil fuel industries trying to stall climate action. I think, you know, if you look back to the Exxon Valdez spill, you could see absolutely the kind of tactics that the company was using to fend off any responsibility. You know, they'd reflagged the ship and renamed it and all this kind of passing off of no taking no responsibility for the disaster that they caused was maybe for me the first time I thought, wow, this is serious money, extremely organized, will do anything to prevent having any responsibility for the impacts. Suddenly, denier speakers were turning up all over the world in interesting places. You know, the Bjorn Lomborgs of the world and Lord Monckton's, and they were spinning lies and trying to obfuscate the science and really get people questioning, just like they did with tobacco. It was a model that's been used over and over to question science. So what's the model? Oh, they would hire, they would fund alternative science, just so doubt that the model is so as much doubt as you possibly can to buy yourself 30, 50, 100 years. It's the same tactic, the same opinion about making money. It's fair game, no matter what the, destroy the atmosphere, destroy people's health, same, same, we don't care, we're making money. Mm. So what at that time, what did you feel was the antidote to this? Like, what could the NGOs do mm. to counter that? Well, I founded 350 Australia here in the same time, about that the US was, 2008, they started 2009 here. And we started with these days of action. And that idea was twofold. The first aspect of the organization was this number 350. And the idea was that people would say, we would put it all over the world, you know, on the pyramids and the Eiffel Tower and the Opera House, and people would say, what's well, 350? And they'd have to ask, what is that safe parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere? And you would just start to get them thinking a little bit about the science. So what is 
350. That's the safe level of carbon in the atmosphere. Okay. We're well over 400 now. I think we're four, it varies 406 to, to, you can get up to 410, 412, um, depending on the time of year and the various impacts. It's not good. So that idea that climate change is a problem for the future, all you have to do, and that was the point of the number, we're past 350 already. We're way past. How do we have, we have to bring it back and below. How hard is that task? Um, and it did work. People liked the idea of creating their own little action or event. Millions of people around the world gather in the largest climate action march in history. The biggest gathering seeking to address climate change ever. 2,000 rallies in 162 countries from Paris, Melbourne, Australia, Rio de Janeiro. Activists are filling the streets to demand action on even if it was four people with a banner, there are people in Antarctica holding up a banner to be part of this big day. And the images poured over in from all over the world. And it looked amazing. And it was, you know, real grassroots people connecting with the issue and wanting to say, I care, I would do something about it. So that was the first thing we did. And the second thing was the divestment campaign. There are many, many other ways of you know, trying to stop big fossil fuel projects here in Australia, the Adani coal mine, for instance. Um, in North America, the tar sands, and how do you stop giant oil shale production? And we would pick these iconic big fights, and we'd say, you know, we have to stop this thing, and try a million tactics for doing that, and, um, and not and not just 350, you know, organ. We would pull in and work with organizations of all kinds. But uh, yeah, the divestment campaign is a is a really great success story that no one knew would work the way that it did when we started it. So I understand for that campaign, you borrowed from the apartheid that's right. um, tactics used yeah. in South Africa. Tell me a bit about that. How yeah, a founder of 350, Bill McKibben, had seen that in, in action and um, realized that when, after apartheid was you know taken down, the, one of the first things Nelson Mandela did was not go to meet governments. He went to California to meet the students at, uh, at Berkeley to say, oh, thank you, because you helped break the, you know, the economic hold by saying divestment, in this case on racist grounds, um, can really have an impact and get the world's attention. And it certainly did. So we used that tactic, but we really thought it would be more of an ethical divestment thing, like we started with churches and universities, and then some kind of ethically minded funds, or at least some that had given a thought to ES, you know, environmental concerns. So it was ESG. like, this is the morally right thing right. to do. Exactly. If yeah. you care about climate, there's not much you can do. Here's something you can do. It's really easy. Move your money. Yeah. And there are good alternatives and people did. Um, and they started doing it in great numbers wow. and in huge amounts. So sudden, I think today we're well past $20 trillion have been divested from fossil fuels. So you've, um, you've moved out of 350.org now and you've mm. started a new project, um, let me get it right. Climate and Capital Media That's is yep. your new project. And it sounds to me, speaking to you, that you are really focused now on that economic message yeah. that um, you've moved away from the sort of moral, this is the morally right thing to do. And you're very much now about well, I th the... I think the moral is always still there. And I think for anybody who even cares, the slight, you have children, you wonder, but what, where's their future going to be or your own future? I mean, we saw the bushfires here in Australia, the fires in California, the impacts of extreme weather happening all over. You, you only have to see that stuff to think in your own self-interest. I should care about climate change. Um, and I think given that, uh, why focus on the money for me and, and climate and capital media is specifically about um, 
watching that success of that divestment campaign and realizing how fast, when the money moves, that impact can happen mm. in a way that, don't get me wrong, I'm 100% behind ongoing grassroots campaigning and we need it. Um, but the other aspect that I think we're probably lagging behind in my experience in divestment campaigning has really shown is they live, the finance community lives in a bit of a bubble and they feed off their own information. They don't know about climate change. They don't know about the risk. They don't see the opportunities of so investing. What do, you, what do you tell them? What do you tell the business You better community? move right now. And if you don't open up your eyes, you will be left behind because people will move into that space and they'll make the money in it and they'll find the solutions. And, and I'm not only talking about for-profit modeling. I'm, you know, blended finance of solutions is going to be critical. Um, that's private sector plus community funding, plus government funding, plus you know, research and innovation funding, it all comes together around climate change. And it really does offer us a model of a new global economy that isn't based on open-ended growth, which cannot survive much longer without us killing the planet. So, you know, while focusing on the money, two things have to happen in parallel. One is move the money right now in our existing capital structure, capitalistic structure. The second thing is rework the models because that idea of open-ended growth equals destruction. Um, we have to figure out how to live within the constraints of the resources of, that we have. And that's going to take a very different economic model. But if we wait for that we will not get on top of climate change in time. I can hear capitalists all over the world terrified by what you've just said. <laughs> well, and at the risk of sounding you optimistic, that message? <laughs> I would say don't be terrified, be excited. Big opportunity. Absolutely. The business opportunity. I'll give you there. green hydrogen as an example. We're yep. sitting on the cusp and you, know, you get people go, ah, oh, can't be done. We said that about photovoltaics 30 years ago. Can't be done, never happened. It's not only done, it's moving so fast right now. The tech is changing every minute of every day. The opportunities in that are enormous, the adaptability. The one word I'd say for our century this year is complexity. It's not going to be, we burn coal, it comes down a big pipeline, and then you turn your lights on in your house. That's all gone. We're looking at a whole complex distributed, focused, where you need it approach to everything, whether it's economics, whether it's energy, you know, this is agriculture. We're going to change in how we do things. It's going to be for the better. Uh, so the people who get their brains around where that investment opportunity are, are going to make a great deal of money, probably have a really good time doing it because it's all pretty fun and exciting stuff. Mm, well, it does sound exciting. Yeah. As a communicator, how do you articulate that message to the business community and mm. actually deliver it to them? So I talk about risk, stranded asset risk, governance risk. You know, right now, a, a, a thing you might not ever have heard of is third-party risk analysis. No, I haven't heard so of that. So you're a what big investor. Okay. You are a ginormous company that invests all over the world, and people come to you for a fund or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. You're now hiring people to assess climate risk, not what the company is providing. You're paying to get it done independently, so you really know whether someone you're about to invest a lot of money on is in a good risk category oh, or a bad risk category. Interesting. It's already happening. So if you want to talk about everybody pretending it's not happening and I'll just motor on, I'm a fossil fuel company, I'm Whitehaven Coal, I'm Woodside, I'm BHP, I'm Shell or Exxon, trust me, 
everybody knows your risk level and they may be thinking long and hard about pulling all their money out of you and you could be stuck with virtually you know no value if you don't move to act if you're on top of it you're a great investment if you're not you'd be thinking twice mm. and that's physical risk of extreme weather it will impact that whole sector enormously mm. so that's the kind of thinking business people respond to so sort of stranded assets physical risk, risk. yeah how on top are, are you in terms of running your business as mm. to where this these trends are going and whether you're moving with it and you know what to do uh, or you don't or you're pretending it's not happening and i can just carry on as i'm doing and is there consumer pressure is that part of it Tons. too yeah i yeah. think so and it, it's funny because it doesn't take great numbers necessarily to move if you're a consumer-facing brand, you can't ignore these things. And, you know, look how many we depend on in the world. Um, even Amazon is now investing heavily in, you know, a climate solutions fund. Mm. Um, Google certainly is. The other thing is a real age divide. Companies run by young people not only see it, they get it, they're moving on. They just see it as part of, a, of doing business, not as some kind of complicated, impossible thing. We find companies that are older boards, you know, dare I say it, white men who've never been questioned about, is it okay to just make money no matter the impact of that, um, are out of touch and at risk. Mm. So tell me about um, climate and capital media. Mm. Is that what you're trying to do, inform the trends? Exactly. There was a recent study that showed something like 08 percent of boards around the world have any kind of climate expertise. I would tell you that wow. within two years that will change significantly because surprising. the money is moving. And again, it's all held by older white men who don't want to relinquish power. If you're a smart board right now, you're hiring younger people, you're hiring people with an ESG background or a sustainability background, uh, or an energy, some connection to how the energy market is moving and changing. We try to follow not the individual stories, but more of the trends and who the leaders are and who to watch. Okay, People need to know about that trend. They need to know about the upcoming conference of the, the COP, they call it, the UN negotiations that the Paris Agreement is a, is a result of, the next one will be critical because it will determine what signals are given to the market, what signals are given to the world about how things are going to change. So these are good things to cover, better things to put into English and get out quickly so that people can read them and say, okay, I'm not going to study this issue for hours of the day, but I can depend on people like Blair who are going to do that and then tell me why I should care. Mm. Um, that's what we try to do. It's really exciting for me to be here with someone like you who's been involved with this for 30 years and to realize that you are full of hope. Absolutely. But there must have been moments when mm. you felt we've gone too far. We've gone beyond the threshold of being able to come back. What advice would you give to climate activists or climate communicators who just get depressed about seeing all the loss around us? Sure, yeah. I think maybe three things. One is to be in a community of people where you can call in help when you need it because everybody hits these really big things that happen that sort of sends you spiraling down into either it's too late or I'm not making any difference. Um, so you need people around you who you can talk to. Um, and there's a great community of people in Australia and around the world. So go find them. There are little volunteer groups in your community. There are bigger networks that work, you know, internationally. Join one and stick with it and make your friends in that, that you can really hang on. And the other two things are that, that it's information overload. There's no doubt about it. And much of it is very negative. If it's 
bothering you, hurting you, or you're suffering, stop it. Just step back. Uh, it's too dark all the time, and you can't take yourself down there and still be motivated to be involved, um, which takes me to three, which is just keep doing things. Do real things that you feel are making a difference, even if it's small, even if it's call. If, that, if you're having a tough week, call your MP and rant and rave and tell them you're sick to death of inaction. Look, you've done something, right? You've gotten it off your chest. You've gone to somebody who should be responsible and is not being responsible, and you've told them what you think of them. These are little things that can make a difference. And I think hanging on to what those things you can do are is really, for me personally, that's how I've stayed in the game for 30 years. I, I just keep getting up every morning and doing what I can do. One step at a time. One step at a time. And then suddenly waves happen. We really have lagged behind in this country. Um, it might be the burden of being a resource-rich nation. But a lot of people sort of say, oh, Australia has such a minute role in all of this. Why do, is Australia important in all of this? And why should action really be taking here. place here? Yeah, well, biggest, depending on when you're looking at the sale figures, we are top three shipping out of our country, coal and gas. We are the biggest exporters in the world in those two things. They are the biggest reasons we have climate change and that we will face serious impacts. Um, that desperate fight to stay under two degrees can potentially depend on Australia. I put it on our own shoulders. Wow. Either we figure out how to transition out of coal and gas fast and, and move on. And it's in our best economic interest. I'm not saying this because it's a feel-good issue. If we don't figure, we have nothing innovation-wise for what our economy is going to do next. And I'm not talking about in the next 30 years. I'm talking about in the next three to five years. If we can't figure out how to get out of coal and gas propping up our economy, we are economically in serious trouble as a country. That's the internal Australian perspective. Globally, it will come down on us like a ton of bricks, whether it's tariffs, whether it's export bans, whether it's sanctions. I mean, you know, you could start talking about sanctions against countries who won't take action. And it's us, Saudi Arabia and Russia, who are looking the worst at the moment. Mm -hmm. And Saudi Arabia has just invested in an all green hydrogen city. Wow. The whole city is powered. We're not doing that. <laughs> Now, the one thing I'd say that should give us some hope is the states are doing a phenomenal job mm. because they have to. And they're almost in a bit of a rivalry for who's going to end up on top in the energy space in particular, but also in the kind of green innovation space. And you only have to look to South Australia, who jumped in early and is literally showing Australia how it's done. It's the cheapest energy in the country. They've got innovation battery storage going on. They've got EVs. They've got uh, hydrogen bus making. They've got, you know, they were out thinking, you know, where's this going long before anybody else? And it is paying off for them in spades. And it's interesting because the narrative is that South Australia is a basket case when it comes yeah. to power generation. That Not they so. have, <laughs> And this story doesn't get out. Murdoch Media owns the vast majority of what information Australians get. They are completely tied in with the fossil fuel agenda, including the lie telling and the Fox News and the, you know, all of the stuff, the Josh Frydenberg line, blame renewables. These are scripted things that come directly out of think tanks that are funded by the fossil fuel industry, and they play out here every day, all day, in the Australian, in the Daily Telegraph. It's fear-mongering. What it's preventing Australians from seeing is 
This is a fantastic opportunity for us. We are the land of renewable energy. If we could just move those interests out of the way, we might actually have an economic plan for this country that will last us 100 years. It's tough being a communicator on these issues in Australia. Yeah. So what would be your advice with everything that you've learned over the years? Look at, you know, how fast things are moving. They're moving in energy, renewables, the cost dropping is so it's the turning point for where where we go and it's no longer a science climate worry issue anymore it is about what makes good economic sense moving on climate now makes great economic sense and there's huge opportunity in it so it's about shifting that narrative from um, doom and gloom doom and gloom to this is an opportunity Absolutely. and it's an opportunity we have to take because it makes economic sense because there is real hope but we have to move super fast uh, yeah. so i would say any laggards just get out of the way because <laughs> most people are kind of pretty keen on doing that fast move uh seeing the opportunities and then showing that it can be done the, the other kind of big opportunistically happy note maybe to end on is um if we solve this, what can't we solve Fantastic. globally? I kid you not, I, of all the issues I've worked on, whether it's health, whether it's human rights, whether, if we can fix climate change, we really truly as a world, we can fix anything because it's going to require such a coordinated global effort, such smarts and innovation, uh, such a change in thinking about greed to how do we all become part of a bigger solution where we all benefit that's all good stuff. And if we do it, we can then use that knowledge to approach a hundred other issues. Thank you, Blair. I feel energized. I mean, this is the kind of message I think we need to hear um, when taking action on climate change, that there really is hope and it's Absolutely. not just lip service. It really is tangible. Yeah, it's exciting. It is. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please, please share it with your network. And also don't forget to subscribe to Changing the Climate Conversation. While you're there, why not give us a rating? Bye for now. <laughs>